Hey everyone, I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years, and this is our question show. Your questions, my answers. Now, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops you in your brain, just write it down and I will gather a bunch of them up every week and I will answer them here. We also do this show live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to have the live question show experience, come and join us. There is always the next event somewhere here on my channel. So you can, I'm sure, click some button to get notified by YouTube because I'm sure that technology works really well. Now, uh, while I am doing the show, you're going to see a planet name come up from the Star Wars universe. And these are votes. So you can go and pick the question that you thought was the best, write the name of the planet in the chat, and you can just write the word for the name of the planet, or you can write the word and then begin a longer question, go ahead. And we will add those up and we will count them here. So last week, the winning question was uh, zero chill who asked what animal would be our best space companion as we move into a spacefaring civilization. And I think I said crickets. People like the question, the answer. So congratulations, Zero Chill, you had the winning question. So once again, if you uh, just vote, tell us which questions and that way I'll know what's best for everybody. So, all right, with those rules out of the way, let's get into the question show. By Gabtier11. Hey, Fraser, I have a question here. When we see the renders of accretion disks around black holes, we see them glowing very bright. Is it only due to that they are hot or is it possible because there could be fusion in the open due to the extreme conditions? Thanks. Yeah, so when we see a black hole, right, we're looking at this object that is so intense that nothing, not even light can escape its grasp. And so it is invisible. And yet, we know that black holes can shine brightly. In fact, quasars, which are supermassive black holes that have active galactic nuclei, where the quasar is actively feeding on material, these can be producing jets that are visible across billions of light years. Some of the brightest objects in the universe are black holes. So, you know, what? Why is that happening? And that is because black holes will accumulate accretion disks around themselves. And like, you could think of accretion disks, like the analogy that I always like to use is like, you're in the bathtub, and you pop the drain on the bathtub. And it's not like all of the water instantly goes down into the bathtub, some just circles around swirls and swirls as the limited exit pipe of the bathtub can slowly try to drain out the water that's in your tub. And it's kind of like that. So you see how the water takes on this circular, it starts to swirl. And it's similar to a black hole. But this is just like an analogy It's not exactly what's going on here. So material is falling down into the black hole, the black hole is spinning, material can't go directly into the black hole, it needs to go into orbit around the black hole first. I mean, like some can if it hits perfectly into the event horizon, it goes straight in, but most of the stuff is doing a glancing blow. And when you think about orbital mechanics, stuff doesn't go straight in, like if you have a satellite, and you are having that satellite orbit around the sun, for example, it's going to follow that orbit forever. 
And if you give it a kick, if you hit it sideways, you're just changing the orbit. You're not going to cause it to spiral inward into the sun. You're just going to give it a different orbit and you give it another kick and now it has a different orbit. The only way to make that satellite actually go into the sun is if it has a constant thrust, a constant acceleration that is slowing, I guess the constant deceleration that is slowing it down. So it's got to have like a rocket engine on board. And so you've got all this material that's going around the black hole. And the stuff that is just missing it is going into orbit, it's encountering other material that's already there, it's bouncing into itself. And it is essentially removing some of its orbital velocity and trapping it in orbit around the black hole, and more and more stuff that's that falls into the path of this region, this accretion disk gets added to the accretion disk and the accretion disk gets bigger and larger. And as more and more material falls into it for like supermassive black holes, it can take on the consistency of a star, like the stuff that is the most dense, the hottest is actually starting to perform fusion inside this accretion disk. And that's where you get some of the really bright disks around these stars, they are glowing brightly in x rays, in the same kind of way as if they were a star. And what's really cool about this is you've got this accretion disk that's going around the black hole. And it could go that way forever, right? Like why what would you know, as I mentioned, you got to give it some kind of kick. And so what's happening when you sort of really look at it very closely, is these particles are jostling against each other. Some particles are getting kicks that are a, a little bit away from the black hole, some are getting kicks a little closer to the black hole. And eventually, particles are kicked so that they get close enough that they fall into the event horizon, and they disappear. And so actually an accretion disk can be very stable around a black hole for a very long time before material gets kicked in and actually falls into the black hole. But yeah, they're bright because they are essentially one big star that is around the black hole that is fusing hydrogen into helium and possibly other heavier elements, releasing enormous amounts of x ray radiation and other wavelengths out into the universe so that we can see them and know, hey, that galaxy has a supermassive black hole in it. Tambourine Man. Hey, Fraser, since the universe is expanding, shouldn't a wide spectrum telescope see a light trail going from infrared to ultraviolet instead of a fixed point image of a star, like a slow shutter photo of a hue changing car headlight? I mean, light emitted 10 billion years ago from a star reaches us with a different wavelength and position in the sky than the light emitted by that same star 5 billion years later, right? Shouldn't that draw a light trail? Love your channel. Thanks. So there's a fallacy that you're making that I see quite a lot. And so I wanted to just gather your question up and add it to the list because I see this so much. And the key is that you asked you, you said, the light is emitted 10 billion years ago from a star, and it's a different wavelength and a position than the same star emitted 5 billion years later. And the assumption that you're making is that we're seeing the star as it was 10 billion years ago. And then we're seeing that same star again, as it looked 5 billion years ago. And that's not true. We are seeing that star at either 10 billion years ago, or 5 billion years ago, but not both. And people are able to wrap their head around this idea that when you look out into space, you're looking backwards in time when we see the sun, we see the sun as it looked eight minutes ago, we see Andromeda, it's two and a half million years ago, when we see the cosmic microwave background radiation, it's 13.8 billion years ago. And that we see out in space in this sphere, where 
we're seeing galaxies as they looked 2 billion years ago and galaxies that looked 10 billion years ago and everywhere in between. And for some reason, this causes this confusion in their mind that they're seeing the same object, but we're not. We're seeing different objects at the galaxy. If you would name it, right, we'll call it galaxy A, and we're seeing it as it looked 2 billion years ago. We are not then also seeing galaxy A as it looked 5 billion years ago. We might be looking at galaxy B as it looks 5 billion years ago, and there's no way to see galaxy B at 2 billion years ago. They are two different locations in the sky. And that's because the light is being emitted from these galaxies in one spot in the sky. And then those photons are passing us, right? They're going beyond us. And so we're not seeing them anymore. We're not seeing Andromeda at many different times in the past. We're seeing it as it looked two and a half million years ago. In the same way that when you hear a firecracker go off a kilometer away. You don't hear a continuous sound from the firework, you hear it once. Now it happened a few seconds ago, but that sound wave is going past you. And then that's what you hear. It's a snapshot in time. But we do see light changing over time. When we look at those galaxies that are 10 billion years ago, they're a different color than the ones that are closer. And that's because the light, the photons that are being released by that galaxy are redshifted in wavelength. And so we're seeing the farther backwards in time that we look, the more those photons are redshifted into into other colors. And what's amazing, like a thing that astronomers can do that no other science can do is they can look in any direction and they can see a galaxy that is 100 million years old, and then they can see one right beside it that is 2 billion years old, and then right beside that they can see one that is 10 billion years old. And they can see all three and compare. They're three different galaxies, but a galaxy is a galaxy is a galaxy. And so you can kind of compare and look at those three different kinds of galaxies and say, huh, what's interesting about the age of the universe when we're seeing that galaxy at? And I know it's a head scratcher, but it's just important to, to remember that you're not seeing the same galaxy multiple times when you look out into the universe. Robert Carveth, why not turn meteors into spaceships, haul them out, and they would be more structural than a tin can? So this is related to the question that we had a couple of weeks ago about how ice is one of the best ways to protect astronauts on a spaceship, that protons in the form of hydrogen, in the form of water, is very effective for protecting astronauts in space. Rock is good too. And so if you are in space and you hide inside an asteroid, you've actually got a pretty good defense against cosmic radiation, solar storms, any other kind of radiation that you're going to experience out in space. And I love this idea of taking an asteroid hollowing out the interior of it, and then setting off on a journey to a star system. Because I don't know, it's kind of like setting off with a life raft that is filled with supplies. When you think about what's in an asteroid, you've got gigatons of, of oxygen, of iron, of aluminum, of silicon, of hydrogen, 
you've got water, you've got various, you know, ammonia, you've got all ices, all kinds of stuff locked inside this thing. And so you build this tiny little colony or a tiny little base inside the asteroid protected from the radiation, you set off on a journey to another destination, you can then start to consume the asteroid as a means of keeping your your colony alive for the duration of the journey, it could take you several 1000 years and yet your asteroid is a reasonable home. And like go bigger. I mean, if you're gonna have to make this journey, and you're gonna have to keep people alive for a long period of time for multiple generations. I really think that if you're going to try and keep people on a generation ship, like a small generation ship, something that is like the enterprise sized, it's it's bordering on a crime against humanity, right? Like, you know, children are born and they're like, what is my purpose? Your purpose is to procreate and die here on this spaceship. Welcome to the universe. But when we think about Earth, right, we live on planet Earth, we live on a planet, we are consuming energy that is coming into planet Earth, we are consuming the various elements that are located on it. And we don't go crazy. And we don't have these existential crises about about how our parents have brought us into this world. And our only purpose is to make sure that the generation ship makes it to its destination. It's just that Earth doesn't have a destination. But imagine if it did. Right? Imagine if planet Earth was being sent to another star system, and it was making the journey through the cold vastness of space, and was keeping us alive, and you'd have this whole planet to keep yourself entertained. Sure, the surface would suck. But underground, once you get a few kilometers below the surface, it'd be nice and warm, there'd be lots of things to do cities underground, and you wouldn't even notice the time except the the whatever thousandth generation that happens to be there when the planet arrives at its destination. So so yeah, I think sending human beings via a hollowed out asteroid, the bigger the better is like the most civilized way to settle the universe. Rules of Imager. Ignoring the pure science fiction aspects, what do you think that the book Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir had an accurate representation of interstellar travel? How close we could get to the technology used in the book? So people have been asking me to do the book club for the channel. And I've decided on the way we're going to do this. And we're going to keep it really simple to begin with. We're not going to be showing up at my house. We're not going to drink red wine. We're not going to agree to read the same book. And then we're going to discuss it uh, because I don't have enough space for everybody. And I'm very far to get to. Um, so my plan for now is that I've created a group on Goodreads. And I will put a link in the show notes, you can go to this group, I will, I'm the moderator. So just ask for an invite, and I will let you join it. And then you're just gonna hurl book suggestions at me. And I we will write them all down and we will discuss them in the Goodreads group. And then I will read the books in a an order that appeals to me. And then I will report to you on the books. So what will this mean? So this will mean that if you have book recommendations that you want to give me, this is a way to do it. And if you want to hear what books I like and what I'm reading, this is the way we'll do this. And I'll either I'll probably do them in the QA. I'll, I'll stop briefly and I will explain the latest book, give you the book review of the week. So 
The book is Project Hail Mary, and everyone had been asking me to read Project Hail Mary, and I did it. I read it over the summer, and I loved it. It was a fantastic book. The way I describe Project Hail Mary, like if you like The Martian, you will love Project Hail Mary. It is really intricate. It is like, the, the way I describe it is like having a mechanic explain to you why they replaced the engine on your aging European sports car with a custom built engine that they found in a Tokyo factory. And they had to make a modif bunch of modifications to this engine to make it fit and work in excruciating detail. And it should suck, but you are riveted. And that is what this is. This is like somebody reading out technical documentation to you that you can't get enough of. And uh, so I really enjoyed Project Hail Mary. The gist is there's a problem with the sun and humanity tries to solve it by sending a spacecraft out to a nearby star system and hijinks ensue. And there's a lot of technical issues that face the protagonist, and he comes up with clever ways to solve them with the help of an unexpected ally. I'm not going to explain anymore because everything is spoiling. So, but I like 100% highly recommend the book. It has a method of interstellar travel. Again, I will spoil it. So, if you haven't read the book, um, the, the method is they find a life form that generates photons at an extreme level that consumes energy and and generates thrust at a an extreme level and it works as like the perfect propulsion system as good as antimatter. And it's incredibly unrealistic that a life form could generate that could do this but it worked really well for the story and it put a lot of really interesting situations for the protagonist to overcome. So I highly recommend Project Hail Mary. If you haven't read it, do so. Uh, it was great. If you haven't read The Martian, of course, The Martian is terrific. Like the movie was great. And I've heard that there actually is a, there's a movie coming out for Project Hail Mary with Ryan Gosling, which is pretty cool. I'm pretty excited. I, I would love to see this movie done you know, an adaptation of the book, and hopefully it's as good as The Martian. So uh, how accurate is it? Not very, but I love the book. And I can't wait to see the movie. So there you go. Here ends the book club for this week. We'll see you next week when I talk about Termination Shock by Neil Stevenson. Adam Johnson, how advanced are quantum computers these days? I remember a while ago, they sort of got three times five right sometimes I assume they are better than that now. So I was at a conference at Google about 10 years ago now. And there's a lot of really smart people there. And somebody from NASA Ames came and gave a presentation, they had recently bought a D wave quantum computer. And the presentation was, we probably think it's a quantum computer, but we're not sure. And the state where we're at right now is we're pretty sure they're quantum computers. But there's a lot that still needs to be understood. So I think, you know, where are we in the quantum computation realm? We're still in the not entirely sure how these things work, where they're going to be more effective than regular computers, if at all, if ever. And, you know, let's talk again in, in 10 years, maybe. But I want to use this 
question as a chance to shamelessly self promote an interview that I just did with Lee Feinberg, who is the optics manager for the James Webb Space Telescope. It's a long interview, we talk quite a bit about the current state of, of Webb, we talk about the telescope that comes after Webb, Louvoir, whatever it's going to be, and then maybe like the telescope that comes after Louvoir. And then stuff gets weird. And we talk about the idea of a quantum computer telescope that right now telescopes when they receive photons, all they're doing is they're recording the brightness of the photon, and then they're throwing it away. And they're, they're essentially translating the brightness of the photon, the wavelength, and then moving on. But actually, there's a lot more quantum information that is held in the photon. So what if you could hold on to all that information, have the telescope receive the photons at a quantum level? There's also this idea of quantum teleportation, that we can take particles and we can teleport them quite far away. So the telescope could be grabbing photons, teleporting them to Earth, where they can be studied in a quantum computer. And then there's this other idea of quantum interferometry, where you can have two telescopes that are separated by a long distance, they can both be gathering photons at a quantum level, they can be teleporting their photons to a central quantum computer. And then because of the way these quantum computers work, they can be interfered, they can be like an interferometer, they can be combined together instantaneously. And you don't have to have them being aligned up in real time the way you do with an visible light interferometer, like the very large telescope or things like that, that you can just take one set of data from one telescope set of data from another telescope, you can combine them on a quantum computer, and they will instantly mash together and give you a result. And so the the idea is that you could launch multiple of these telescopes separated by 1000s of kilometers, they are teleporting their data feeds back home, you are combining the light and you are effectively having a telescope that is the size of the distance among them. And so you could, according to Lee, build a telescope that lets you see, um, say a, a planet Earth at a one megapixel resolution, you know, like, like an Earth around another star. That's the same kind of resolution you could get with say a solar gravitational lens, except you don't have to send a spacecraft out to a 1000 astronomical units, you just have it in orbit around the Earth, or at the L2 point. And you can point it at anything that you like. So and all of the technology is sort of in the works right now. So it's a mind bending interview. If you haven't already listened to this interview with Lee Feinberg, it is one of the craziest conversations I've ever had on this field. And I think you will get a lot out of it. So that's it. Uh, hopefully, you'll get some interesting questions answered about quantum computers in that interview. If you like my answers to your questions, as well as other things that we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club, you'll get an ad free experience on universetoday.com for life, even if you unsubscribe. And you'll get ad free videos, early access to interviews, as well as other perks that are exclusive to our Patreon community. Thanks to everyone who already subscribed and welcome to the recent newcomers. Keith Brian Lewis, Richard Lowe, Katrian Vander Hayden, Paul Lucas, Roger Reynolds, David E. O'Dell, Sapjez, Charles Roche, Girolamo Costaldo. Join the club at patreon.com slash universe today. Peter McCaskill, if we had enough time to prepare, would it be possible to hitch a ride on another Oumuamua type asteroid and drop a probe or something onto it? Sure. In theory, 
if you had enough time, you could see the trajectory that another interstellar object was going to be make as it came close to Earth or to the sun, you would be able to send a spacecraft off to try to reach it, try to go into orbit around it, send down a lander. It is a bit of a challenge, though, because they're coming in with a very high velocity, they came from an on an interstellar trajectory, they're going to be leaving the solar system on an interstellar trajectory, they are moving faster than escape velocity to leave the solar system, which is compared to the sun like above 42 kilometers per second. Now, if the orbits lined up nicely, you get to use the orbit of the Earth, which is 30 kilometers per second going around the sun. And so then you could probably match up with say maybe a 20 kilometer per second delta v to try and reach that object. It's tricky, you're going to need just the right object that is going in just the right direction. But it is theoretically possible like we have spacecraft capable of doing that. Falcon Heavy with a little lander right on the top. The key is to be ready that you don't want to wait while the object is already leaving the solar system to sit down and go, hmm, let's design our spacecraft. Now that said, it is still possible to reach Oumuamua, even though Oumuamua has now been multiple years that it has come through the closest point of the solar system, it is on its way out. But you could still load up a Falcon Heavy with a teeny tiny spacecraft and launch it at Oumuamua, chase it down and land on it. It's, you know, there's some other techniques like you could do a flyby of the sun, multiple flybys of various planets, Jupiter, Saturn, etc. You get quite a lot of velocity and you could link up with it. Now it would take you about 50 years, but it's still possible. There's a group called Project Lyra that continuously keep updating on what it would take to go to Oumuamua. And wouldn't it be amazing? Like this is a object that was formed in another star system and made the journey to the solar system. So you would learn a tremendous amount about not the solar system by being able to study this thing up close. Maybe it's an alien spacecraft. It's probably not. But still, um, no matter what you what it is, it is would be a boon to science. But this idea of hitching a ride, I think is the part that I need to sort of break. And that is because there's no hitching a ride like in space, if you're able to go into orbit around an object or able to land on an object, then you have effectively matched its trajectory. And once you've matched its trajectory, there is no hitching a ride because you are now flying beside it. And so you have done all the hard work to get to it. And then you're just going to be following along with it forever, or you're going to land on it and, and follow it forever. So like maybe you could get the benefit of landing on Oumuamua and then you could drill down and hide underneath the regolith to protect your spacecraft from cosmic radiation and other dangerous stuff out there. But beyond that, there's really, there's no such thing as hitching a ride. People will use this term all the time. Like wouldn't it be cool? You just hitch a ride on a comet. No, it would be like driving as fast as another car. Like if like, wouldn't it be cool if you could hitch a ride on a car that is going down the highway at 100 kilometers per hour? Well, what you need to do is you need to find a car, have that car go 100 kilometers per hour, 
pull up right beside that car and then you would get out of the one car and into the other car. It sounds dangerous. Um, but if you've already got your car up to 100 kilometers per hour, you don't need the first car. You've already got a car and you're just driving it and you don't need to get out of your car and have all that danger. So there's no benefit, no advantage to hitching a ride. But still, the scientific discoveries we could make on a place like Oumuamua would be mind blowing. And I think we should absolutely do it. I, you know, if it were up to me, I would definitely send that chase spacecraft after Oumuamua. There's some amazing engineering challenges that would teach us a lot about rocketry and sort of pushing the limits. And to just have in the hands of scientists, a asteroid or comet that formed in another star system would be incredible. There's even one idea that you could bring a sample home that you could with the right spacecraft, you could even still land on Oumuamua, gather up a sample and bring it home. Like it's within our capability. Can you imagine that a sample return mission from an interstellar object? That would be crazy. Snars tax. Other than our view of Andromeda, what source is there for the existence of dark matter, dark energy? I'm not sure how useful our view of Andromeda is for the existence of dark matter, dark energy, I guess maybe the rotation speed of Andromeda wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for a giant halo of dark matter around the galaxy. But let's break them up dark matter, of course, is this mysterious mass that interacts with regular matter through gravity, but doesn't release any kind of electromagnetic radiation it appears to be the dominant form of matter in the universe. And then dark energy is this mysterious force that is accelerating the expansion of the universe, it seems to be some kind of constant outward pressure that appears in every single cubic meter of the universe, the more space there is the more dark energy there is, and it is the dominant source of the universe, like 70% of the universe is dark energy. So how do we know these things are true? And like, it would take me in a whole episode to run through the chain of evidence that got us to the point that the modern understanding of, of, of dark matter and dark energy. But I want to point you to a recent interview that I did with Dylan Brout from the Pantheon Plus uh, collaboration. And what they did was they measured 1550 type one a supernovae, which are a certain kind of star that goes off with a very certain kind of brightness. And when you see one of these, you measure the brightness, and that tells you how far away the thing is. And with 1500 of these, they were able to measure the expansion rate of the universe at different points along its history. And what they were able to find to a level of accuracy that, you know, no other sciences can really do so to five sigma accuracy. In other words, there's a one in 3.6 million chance that they're wrong. They were able to measure the ratios of matter to dark matter. So how do you measure the amount of matter to dark matter and 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 measure the the sort of total quantity there. And so what they did was Essentially, when you think about the Big Bang, you've got all of these galaxies that are spreading outward after the beginning stages of the universe, they are the question you want to ask yourself is, well, you've got all this mass. Is this mass? Who knows what set it off in the first place? You know, 
question mark, question mark, question mark, but it is definitely getting less sense. Things are definitely moving away from each other today. So if you add up all the mass of all of those objects, can you get a sense of whether or not they're going to come together? They're going to slow down through their mutual attraction and eventually just form one giant ball somewhere in the universe. Maybe a big crunch. And so astronomers sort of calculated the mass of the universe. And the way they did that was by measuring these type 1a supernovae. They were able to see how fast the universe was expanding at different points in its history. So you've got a bunch of type 1a supernovae that are close by, you've got a more, more type 1a supernovae that are farther, you've got more type 1a supernovae that are even farther than that. And from those different time slices of the universe, you can measure how fast these things are spreading apart. And from there, you can measure the amount of matter that is in the universe that is essentially decelerating this expansion of the universe. And they were able to measure the accuracy of the dark matter and the matter. You know, we know how much matter there is because we can count it, we can see it. You add up all the galaxies, you measure the gas in between. That gets you one number and then the rest is dark matter, the stuff you can't see. And again, they were able to measure this to five sigma accuracy. And the thing that's really weird is that about the seven, eight billion year mark, when you would be expecting the universe to be slowing down on this very smooth curve, it starts to speed up and just is going faster and faster and faster. And this is dark energy. And the first discovery was made back in 1998 using type 1a supernova. And now with this modern measurement, again, we're at five sigma accuracy. So there's a one in 3.6 million chance that there is no dark energy. And that's just one line of evidence. I mean, you can look at galaxy rotation curves, you can look at the signal in the cosmic microwave background radiation, you can look at gravitational lensing from clusters as as matter is lensing the light from more distant objects. There's many, many independent lines of evidence that show that dark matter and dark energy are there. Nobody knows what they are. And and that's fine. Like one thing at a time, right? Let's figure out that this thing exists, or that these things exist, that these things are present in the universe, that there are mysteries that need solving. And once you get to that point, then comes the let's figure out what they are. Let's launch the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, which is designed to measure the expansion rate of the universe at a level of accuracy that's never been seen before. Let's build the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is going to be mapping not 1500 supernova, but 1 million supernova to again, measure the accuracy of the expansion of the universe at different times in its history. And then let's examine the universe in gravitational waves. Let's examine the universe in neutrinos. Each one of these different ways of looking at the universe gets us closer, if not answering what they are, at least parameterizing, understanding their impact and influence on the universe, and starting to reject various ideas for what they could be. And it might be again that we never know what they are, but it might be that after a while you've rejected every possible idea and whatever remains is the most likely the one that has the most evidence for it. Nate King, if the background microwave radiation at the edge of our observable universe was generated during the Big Bang, how could there be anything past that point? 
So when we see the cosmic microwave background, we are seeing the universe as it looked 13.8 billion years. The light that was released at the cosmic microwave background has been traveling for 13.8 billion years, well, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe. And it is the farthest that we can see in radiation because at that point, the entire universe was effectively like a red giant star and was ionized. And so the light couldn't escape. And then finally, you got this point where light could finally escape out into the universe. And so every second that goes by every minute that goes by, we are seeing the new region of space that is releasing this light for the first time. There's like this expanding sphere around us, where the universe is releasing their first light. And then the next a minute later, a little bit farther, and it's releasing its first light. And then a minute later, another bigger sphere, and it's releasing its first light. So that's because but but that's the only reason that's the case is because light takes time, it, you know, a light light moves a light year per year. And so that's not what the universe is really like, the universe might very well be infinite. And so if you travel a billion light years, 10 billion light years in any direction, you're going to see a modern mature universe like we have here today, spiral galaxies, gas, supermassive black holes, planets, etc. in all directions, maybe forever. And so it's like the universe was infinite back then. And the universe is infinite now. It's just that it has taken time for the light to reach us. And so we can just never see the universe as it looks today, because of the light travel time. So how could there be anything past that point? Like, are you asking, like, how could there be anything past the cosmic microbeck? Well, we know via math and an understanding of physics, how the universe would have behaved at denser and denser points earlier on in time. But you get to the zero point, and then our understanding our physics stop, we do we have no way to proceed to understand what was there before, or if there was anything there before, or if it was the beginning of time and space or anything. So it's a time issue, which sets one of the limits in the universe is the earliest point in the universe, but not a distance. JP, how will AI affect the future of astronomy? AI is already having a dramatic impact in the future of astronomy. And, and like, in the olden days, if you wanted to study the spectra of a 1000 galaxies, you would have to lean on an army of grad students. And it was unfun work <laughs> at the best that you would have to sit down and study these galaxies one at a time, and and produce all of this data. And then for a while there, there were some challenges that like human beings were really good at like identifying which direction a galaxy is rotating, but were actually pretty difficult for a computer to figure out. And so we had this rise of citizen science projects, uh, Galaxy Zoo, the work that that we do at CosmoQuest, counting craters, searching for Kuiper belt objects, that kind of thing. But artificial intelligence has been making some incredible strides in astronomy. We're getting to the point now where we're seeing artificial intelligence discover planets in data that you give it enough information about what a planet looks like in the data, and then it goes and examines the brightness data of 
millions of star systems and it finds new planets or new planetary candidates that they're starting to characterize galaxies in a way that used to require human beings at a massive scale. So astronomy is is a data game is is about collecting enormous amounts of data and then attempting to study that data. And the modern form of telescopes, you think about the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is going to be dumping, I forget, exabytes, petabytes of data onto the internet on a monthly basis, no human being can go through this much data, but a computer can. And so if you can properly train with machine learning, I mean, it's not exactly artificial intelligence. So like, don't send me the angry emails. But if you can properly train an algorithm to recognize what a galaxy is, or a a certain kind of nebula or a certain kind of star or a supernova or whatever, or an asteroid or so on, then you can have them go and crunch through data with, uh, with a lot of accuracy. So I mean, not only will the future really involve machine learning, it's going to depend on it to really make any meaningful, like how do you study the atmosphere of 50 million exoplanets without leaning on a machine learning algorithm to do it? Karate master Fraser, would you get yourself cryogenically frozen and then asked to be thought out in a couple of hundred years? Like if it was safe, then absolutely. Like if I knew that that it would work and that after I died, I could be cryogenically frozen and then and then someone wasn't going to just forget and let me thaw out and rot in a tube somewhere, then yeah, I, I would do that. Um, I, I like the idea. I'm, I'm excited about the future. And I would love to see people always ask me this question, right? Like, would you rather live in the past? Or would you like to live in the future? Future? Like, obviously, we have some challenges, you know, it's so like maybe after the climate wars. But I am pretty excited about all of this technology. And like, after the robot uprising, after the global pandemic, the genetically engineered pandemic, then you can unthaw me. Uh, when we've made peace with the robots, when we've outlawed the technology to, to do gene splicing to create your own pandemics. Um, and then after we're the whole planet is carbon neutral. That's that's what I'd like to see the, what the future looks like. But no, I'm excited about the future. And like, when I think about my career, the kinds of stories that I am excited about the kinds of things that I gravitate towards are stuff that's in the future that but is tangible, that's doable stuff that's in the near future, new ideas for telescopes, new ideas for missions, interesting ideas to solve vexing astronomical challenges. I'm excited about the future. I always have been and I would love to see what happens next. I'm an early adopter about everything. But would I get myself cryogenically frozen? Now? If I knew that it was 100% safe, and I could see the future? Maybe <laughs> I know my wife would. So we can do it together. Probably. Yeah. Okay, those are all the questions that we had this week. Thank you everyone for hanging out. Don't forget to vote in the comments below for the question that you thought was the best. Remember, we record these shows every Monday at 5pm Pacific time. So if you want to join the show, put in some kind of like notification, click the notification bell, subscribe all of the YouTube stuff. And uh, we'll see you on the live show or on the next question show. Thanks, everyone.
If you want to stay on top of all the important space news, join my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 55,000 people. I write every word, there are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Josh Schultz and Andrew M. Gross who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.